MailChimp presents. Ever heard of a customer? You know, it's when marketers group all their customers, regardless of their different behaviors, into one big mess. But with MailChimp, you can use real-time behavior data to personalize emails for every customer based on their browsing and buying behavior, turning your customers into customers. Intuit MailChimp, the number one email marketing and automations brand. Based on competitor brands' publicly available data on worldwide numbers of customers in 2021 and 2022. Availability of features and functionality vary by plan, which are subject to change. We all have that elder, you know, like an auntie, a friend, a parent, who drops wisdom on us and changes the course of our lives. This season, I'm talking to 15 incredible people about important moments they went through and how the elders in their lives got them through it. I'm your host, Jenny Yang, and this is Going Through It. This week, Zoran Mamdani. Oftentimes when you receive tough love, you want to brush it off and you want to reject it. And you feel like it's just like a personal attack and it's a judgment and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a step too far. But I think if it's done in the right way, you understand that this is exactly the kind of love you deserve in this moment. The first thing I did when I graduated from college as an idealistic young activist was to have one sweaty and beautiful summer in New York City. I worked on affordable housing in the Lower East Side by day and ran youth leadership training with high school kids in Chinatown by night. I was dancing at South Street Seaport. I was drinking too many Long Island iced teas. We're in New York, you drink Long Island, she thought. I stayed in Richmond Hill in Queens at the end of the A-line and walked home to the hype beats of West Indian Chutney Soka blasting into the streets. I mean, I fell in love with the city. Vibrant and diverse working-class communities defined my New York experience. That's why I've been so inspired by how Queens has undergone such a dramatic political transformation in recent years. A movement of young and motivated lawmakers has emerged from the area. People like... Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the guest for today's episode, Zoran Mamdani. Zoran represents the 36th district of the New York State Assembly. He's a democratic socialist who unseated the district's incumbent in 2020, a total game changer. His campaign tagline was Roti and Roses. Zoran's family moved from Uganda to New York when he was seven. His mother, Mira Nair, is an acclaimed filmmaker, and his father, Mahmoud Mandani, is a professor at Columbia University and the chancellor of Kampala University in Uganda. I mean, with parents like that, you know those expectations for Zoran were pretty high. And he would always manage to eke out that grade until one semester in college when his transcript didn't quite cut it. We'll get into those grades and what they meant because today's episode is all about tough love and how you manage great expectations. But first, something very important. It's where every conversation with a new person starts. Immigrant kids, second generation hotties, people who aren't named Tim or Steve. You know what I'm talking about. 
my name is actually pronounced Zahran. There's a minimal H there. It's a little bit present, a little bit airy. And it's very difficult for a lot of people to say. But even before they get a chance to say it, a lot of times in my life, I wouldn't even pronounce it in that full extent because I would be seeking to minimize myself, the ways in which I'm different from others, and not have to reckon with my very unique and complex identities and histories. And as I've grown older and as I've become more and more confident in who I am and where I come from, I've started to say my name as it actually is. And that is part and parcel of this contest of belonging and of identity and this question of do you minimize yourself to make other people comfortable or do you assert who you are in spite of their inability to reckon with it at times. Now, I say Zahran, but the question of how I respond to other people's pronunciation of my name depends on a day-to-day amount of energy that I have. Sometimes I'll correct them and sometimes I'll just go along with it because I simply don't have it in me. You know, my name is Jenny. That's not my real name. Legally, it's still not my real name. And honestly, I don't tell people my real name because at some point it's not that I'm ashamed of it. I'm ashamed for the people who mispronounce it. And so <laughs> that's why I'm going with an anglicized version, embarrassing myself and saying your name Zoran instead of with the light H because I don't want to disappoint you, Zoran. <laughs> no, no disappointment here. <laughs> Growing up in New York City, it's a very diverse place, and yet I remember being very self-conscious about my identity, in high school especially. And then I went to this college, Bowdoin College in Maine, which was far whiter, far colder. The sun went away far earlier in the day. And, And in many ways, I was also forced to come to terms with who I was and who I wanted to be. And those early years was me kind of like, you know, trying and failing to understand that and kind of coming to a head as I went longer and longer into college. I think that I didn't naturally fit into any like identity group. Um, and I mean that not just racially, but also at, at my school, there was such a big emphasis on being a member of a sports team or having some kind of a quote-unquote tribe that you belong to. In many ways, it was like a fraternity mixed with an athletic culture. Um, and so I remember just having an interesting time figuring out like how how exactly do I relate to this place? What exactly um, is my identity in this space? And then also being Indian Ugandan, these are not terms that a lot of people have enough difficulty with either of them on their own, let alone yeah. putting the two of them together. <laughs> They're like India, yeah. Uganda, <laughs> Indian, Ugandan, <laughs> head explodes. Yeah. <laughs> There's this temptation to kind of minimize yourself in some ways or what your background is or your history or where you come from to make it as understandable or palatable for somebody. So I'm born and raised in Kampala, Uganda, in East Africa. And so most summers I would go back and visit family in Kampala. And this summer, um, this is right after sophomore year, I go back to Kampala and my mom is away and it's me, my father, and his brother, my uncle. And the three of us go on a road trip through East Africa. If you were to meet my father in person, you would see somebody who you definitely would understand if someone told you, oh, that's a professor, that's an intellectual. What I love is that when I'm back in Kampala, one of my father's nicknames is just simply Professor. My father 
is a professor of anthropology as well as a professor of African studies. He teaches at Columbia, but spends eight months a year teaching at the Makere Institute of Social Research. And Makere is the most prominent university in Uganda. The vast majority of people who go on into the upper echelons of civil society or government or business, they would go and study at Makere. So there are so many different people at different points of society who had him as their professor, even though they're only one, two, three, four years younger than him. And so his name to them is Professor. Iconic. And then there's my uncle, Anis Chachu. Chachu is a word for uncle. And um, in many ways just has the air of like a 60s, 70s movie star. Immense sense of style, clothes that I would always steal from him, and loves to drive... And he is driving us on this road trip. And we're going from Kampala across East Africa. We're going to Nairobi, Naivasha, Dar es Salaam, Zanzibar, across Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania. These are the places that at different times in their life, they've called these cities, these towns, these roads, their home. And in the context of reckoning with what it means to be an Asian East African and the legacies of the 1972 expulsion of, of Indians by Idi Amin, you know, my family becoming refugees in England and then coming back to East Africa. All of these memories swirling around as we go from town to town, city to city. We're going through this trip, and it's a trip that is so anchored in my identity of being an Indian Ugandan. And I remember we were at this amazing hotel and it's this the three of us and we've had just like another great day of memories and stories and I'm sitting in my room and refreshing this Bowdoin website and I get these grades back and I just have this like pit in my stomach because I know that when I tell my dad about these grades, this trip is not going to be the same. Like. <laughs> It's going to be more of like an intervention in the middle of Kenya. And I see these grades and, you know, it's a, you know, there's a C plus in there. There's a B minus in there. It averages out to like a B, B plus for the entire semester, which, as you know, is a crisis. A total crisis. <laughs> uh, I mean, was this the first time you had like underachieved? Over many years in middle school, in high school, in the early years of college, I have been able to get away with not quite achieving excellence at a consistent place in my classes, in my subjects. I would either do really well in the ones that I cared about pretty poorly in the ones I didn't, or I would simply be like, you know, getting an 88 or an 89 in a school where really you wanted to be getting a 92 or a 93. And then... I'd been able to get away with it. For for high school, my SAT scores bailed me out of my GPA. Um, for middle school, my specialized high school exam bailed me out of my middle school GPA. And then here I was, sophomore year of college, and there was nothing that was going to bail me out of these grades. And so I told my dad, and it was exactly as I had feared. It was just... <laughs> Heavy disappointment. You know, you know that feeling. Just like it's like the air has been sucked out of the room and replaced with judgment, guilt, and grief and disappointment all at once. 
It's like the the weight of your ancestors yeah, crashed just, down upon you. Just like Dada? Is that, <laughs> is that you? I didn't know the C plus was going to disappoint you so much. And in that conversation, it was still very revealing because for me, I only saw the potential consequence going up to a certain point. And my worry in that moment is about the trip. It's about, ah, like we're having such a great time and my inability to apply myself is going to ruin this for myself, for him, for my uncle. I'm not thinking of anything beyond that. Yeah, and you're like, man, this is going to kill the vibe. This is going to kill this the vibe, kill the vibe. Classic me, I'm worried about the vibe. And then my dad introduces this idea, something I'd heard of, but didn't truly understand, called consequences. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember him telling me, without me bringing it up, that the next semester, my junior fall, a semester in which I had planned and applied and figured everything out for that I would be going to the American University of Beirut to further my Arabic studies, but to really have a great few months in Lebanon and travel and take a real break from Brunswick, Maine and see a world from a different vantage point. He told me I wasn't gonna go. And I remember the shock that I felt and the immediate attempt to try and push back on that. Right after that, just very quickly realizing how futile that attempt would be. <laughs> but Baba, junior year, everybody at Bowdoin, they study abroad. They're going to Barcelona. They're going to Santiago. I'm going, you know, everybody goes abroad. It's part of the college experience. We go abroad. And my dad just looks at me and he tells me, you're already abroad. It was this classic Baba line where he could, in the moment, just clarify things in such a way that takes all of the steam out of my sails and made me realize that what is normal and natural and to be expected for so many others at my school isn't the same thing for me. And realizing this sense of, I always want to be just as those who are around me, that desire pushes up against the limitations of reality. And in this case, it was a good thing for me to understand. In other cases, it's sometimes been difficult. And I remember the crushing disappointment that came after <laughs> realizing that he was not joking around. But more than that, I remember that the year after, that that summer and then the year that came after that became a time of intense study and rigor and discipline and intention that had been missing in my academic life for the entirety of it. And I would not have had that if I had been able to, in many ways, get away with what I had been doing for many, many years. It was, it was really like lighting a fire under my ass, um, but it was done in, in a way that, that made me also want to do the same thing. Because oftentimes when you receive tough love, you want to brush it off and you want to reject it. And you feel like it's just like a personal attack and it's a judgment and you know it's it's a it's a step too far but i think if it's done in the right way you understand that this is exactly the kind of love you deserve in this moment yeah yeah could you talk a little bit more about the year after this trip like what made it so intense up until that point i was a government and legal studies major which is the most popular major at bowden it's basically political science and after that year, I switched my major to Africana Studies 
study of Africa and the African diaspora and through multiple different disciplines. And I really do believe that shifting that major also shifted my understanding of what it was that I was interested in and where it was that I wanted to be. It just took what was such a surface level political analysis and gave it depth. And I would not have had that. I I academically literally could not have had that if I had had a semester abroad because I wouldn't have been able to fulfill those academic requirements. I wouldn't have had enough semesters. And so by staying there for an extra semester, by having two full years in front of me, I was able to change my focus and actually apply my focus and give my focus and also finally take the transition from kind of a passive understanding of politics to an active one. And I also feel that now as an assembly member where I'm the first South Asian man to have won elected office in New York City. I'm the third Muslim to serve in the state assembly. There are these things that are unique markers of identity and of a history that has never had place for those identities. And these are markers that I typically don't try and think of that much. I try and go into that space and just exist as if I am one of 150 other assembly members. And yet there are these moments where those identities, where those realities and those histories, they come to a head and I have to reckon with them. When I realize that somebody's calling me for a meeting and it's Eid, like one of the holiest days in the Islamic calendar. And I'm like, I, I can't meet today, it's Eid. And I'm like, what's Eid? I'll be like, bro, what's Christmas? <laughs> I can't meet. <laughs> and that's and that's like a smaller example. But then there are these larger things where you just realize that you have a responsibility. And in that moment with my father, I realized that I had a responsibility to him, to my parents, to also to myself for what I was actually at college for. And in these moments at work now, I realize that I have a responsibility to a much larger community of people who do not have an advocate or a representative that they truly can feel as if there is a kinship and an understanding of a shared experience. I mean, wow. Like, who knew back then, like, you thought you're going to have a chill time and connect with your family, but your dad had to hit you with this, like, cold, hard truth that made you realize all of this responsibility stuff? <laughs> I mean, it also sounds like it totally changed how you thought about yourself. So like, I wonder, like, how has your relationship with your identity changed over time? Initially, when I was younger, I remember, you know, you there didn't seem to be space to both have one racial identity and then a different identity of ethnicity or belonging or nationality. They had to kind of overlap very easily. And so it was very difficult for me to realize, like, could I both be Asian and Ugandan, like, and and check this box, but then have to explain this in person? And as I got older, I became more comfortable with understanding that nobody who created those boxes created them with anyone like me in mind. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm an immigrant myself from Taiwan. And even then, there was a kind of narrowness to my sense of what identities were. Right. I grew up in Southern California. I was surrounded by a lot of East Asians, Filipinos, Pacific Islanders, you know, Latinx folks. But I have to tell you, in high school, the first time I met like an Asian, East Asian looking girl who said, I'm from Bolivia, blew my mind. 
I was like, what does that even mean? You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like as much as I feel like I'm very worldly and exposed to a lot of different cultures, there's a level of like parochialism and, you know, and just sort of ignorance that I had even meeting someone who was Chinese Bolivian, you know? Yeah. I always remember that because I got very politicized in college too and like organized with students of color and queer activists and we all kind of banded together and did a lot of coalition building and I learned so much. I still have to remember that I could still be so narrow in my understanding of what identity means. You kind of inherit the framework of white America in understanding yourself yep. and people who come from the world of immediate proximity. And so... I would find myself flattening what India was. I'd be like, oh, we're both Indian American. <laughs> high five. And, high five. <laughs> My friend would be like, bro, like, I'm from Kerala. Like, we speak totally different language. We have a totally different history. <laughs> all the songs that you're like, oh, it's Indian culture, it's Indian food. That's all from Punjab. I'd be like, oh, you're right. You're right. Now I'm at peace with myself. But growing up, it was a source of a lot of tension and anxiety. Um, internally, because in Uganda, I'm Asian. And in Uganda, Asian means Indian. And in India, I'm Muslim. And in this country, I'm all of these things. And then when I'm in a Muslim community, I'm Shia. Oh, it gets even more granular. And so it was just like, when will I not be the minority? And I used to just be very tired of forever living on the margins, even amongst people on the margins. And I remember talking to my dad about this and just telling him that I was just so tired and asking him as somebody who lived through independence and the anti-colonial struggle and was a big part of that, but is forever assumed to not be from this place that he holds so dear. How does he deal with that? How am I supposed to deal with that? And I remember him telling me that to be on the margins, to be a minority is in many ways a blessing because it ensures that you always see society for what it is as opposed to what it's promised to be. Because when you're in the majority, you get to live life as if it's the first 30 seconds of the healthcare commercial. And when you're in the minority, you live through the terms and conditions and all of the potential consequences that come in the second half of the commercial. <laughs> and there's a blissfulness and an ignorance that lives in that majority. And there's a truth that is seen by that minority. And that truth can be tiring. That truth can be burdensome. But at the end of the day, it's also very clarifying because you never have to wonder whether what you're seeing and what you're feeling is real. I think a lot of people could feel very hopeless that like the way things are, are just the way that they have to be. And so that's what I appreciate about you is that like, as much as like sometimes academia, people kind of might stereotype it as something that's in your head or that's just, you know, on paper, that it was a true life lesson for you. It's a true life lesson. People ask me, how did you become a socialist assembly person? I'm like, I got a, I got a C plus in macroeconomics. <laughs> and, and I never was allowed to forget it. Well, dang. Uh, maybe more of us should be getting a C plus 
in macroeconomics? Question <laughs> mark. You know, even if it's not always what we want to hear in the moment, tough love can sometimes be the encouragement we need to be at our best. And listen, no one knows tough love quite like immigrant kids. Ah. Uh, Immigrant parenting, the punchlines of so many jokes. Yes, mine were intense. Yes, they came from a place of love. And yes, I had the hours of therapy to prove it. But if I'm honest with you, some of the parenting I got really worked. Since I was five years old, anything less than 100 was not enough. You know the stereotype that a B is an Asian F? Well, sometimes that's true, okay? My ass got straight A's since kindergarten because at a tender little age, my mom used the classic Chinese parenting technique of fear and pure devastation. She told me that when you do your math, it's like working on rocket ships. If you miss just one calculation, the rocket ship will explode. I was like, really? She looked straight into my eyes dead serious and was like, yes. I was like, damn, mom, so scary. But did I remember to double check my answers every time? You know I did. I am not trying to murder astronauts with my bad math. <sighs> All joking aside, tough love is a powerful tool to be used wisely. The reason it works is because it so often comes from a place of experience, wisdom, and of course, love. And in the case of Zoran's story, it completely changed his character in the course of his life. And I hate to say it, but sometimes our parents are right. Going Through It is an original podcast created in partnership with MailChimp and Pineapple Street Studios. Executive producers for Going Through It are Jayann Berry, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. Our managing producer is Agarenish Ashagre. This season is produced by the all-star team of Sophia Steinert-Evoy, Emerald O'Brien, and Yinka Rickford-Anguin. And we're edited by the irreplaceable Aaron Edwards. We're engineered to perfection or very close to it by Davey Sumner. Our theme music was produced by Raj Makija. Dawood Anthony also produced original music for this season with additional tunes from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers. Extra special thanks to Himia Freeman for his support on this production. And of course, the biggest thanks to my own elders for everything and for being the inspiration behind the show. Mom, Dad, Margaret Cho, Tracy Katokiriyama, Keiko Agena, Tim Sams, Gina Lugong, Kwan Fung, Michelle Ko, and so many more. And thanks in general to my loud-ass partner, Corey Higgs, for staying quiet in the house for me. And thank you for listening.